welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am with my friend and producer, Max Kerman. Hello. How's it going, Mike? It's going great, Max. How have you been? Pretty good. I missed missed you last week, though. It's true. A week off hurts. I know. But we saw each other on the weekend. We did. (laughs) We fooling. So for those of you that have been following the Mike on Much podcast, we recently had to take, uh, well, we took last week off. Yeah, they said, cool it, guys. We don't want to burn through all these episodes in one go. Yeah. You guys hold your horses. We want to stretch it out. Give people a chance to catch up. Yeah. So we said, okay, fine. We'll just party on the weekend then. That was the reason we needed to party. (laughs) So even though we had this week off, uh, we still decided to get together this weekend. So there's like a group of 12 of us, or I don't know how many. There's like 15. Sometimes it balloons up to 18. It grows by the day. Just like dudes, uh, friends of ours in Hamilton. And they've all been added to our Facebook message group. Yeah. We the Facebook message group is actually quite handy because it, it allows everybody to be looped in with the plans. Nobody can say that they like didn't know something was happening or were excluded. Somehow. Or were excluded because in the past we've had some like uh, some sensitive grown some, men, and uh, we won't mention uh, his name, but he's also on this podcast and he appears later <laughs> in the show. <laughs> when Shane has been left out of an event, you will not hear the end of it. He's still bringing up like something he wasn't notified about, like. Four years ago. <laughs> he was like, do you remember that key to ballot four years ago? <laughs> Old Shady Boy wasn't there. <laughs> so, no, so it was just a bunch of dudes hanging out this week. And we started uh, our weekend at uh, a very kind of exclusive place. It felt very exclusive to me. Yeah, no, me too. I, I'd never been there before. The Thompson Hotel. Well, Toronto. specifically the Thompson Pool. Yeah, the rooftop pool. Yeah, the, and that place is like Miami Beach. So through a friend, uh, a friend of ours, Adam Burchill, uh, he's moved in there recently. Adam is... Probably like the swankiest guy we know. Definitely. Adam loves a million dollars. Not the song by the Bare Naked Ladies. He probably loves that too, though. <laughs> Who doesn't? Uh, the, the concept of a million dollars is so satisfying to Adam. Uh, we went on like a, a trip for our friend Julian's back. We mentioned Julian. He got kicked out of the Gita Bala. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that have been regular listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we went on Julian's bachelor trip. Uh, it was a tour of the South. Uh, and we were somewhere like drunkenly stumbling around the streets of Nashville. And Adam says to Matt Savelli and I, he says, you know what? It's ridiculous that we're not all millionaires right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Virgil's a dreamer and I love Virgil. Virgil, you know, didn't come from much and he's now like a self-made man. He's living in the penthouse at the Thompson. He's living at the penthouse. Yeah. Exactly. And, he, and he can invite some friends over for a dip in the pool. So it was it was a scene. So Max and I are in Hamilton. Uh, we decided to drive out to Toronto yeah. and hang out at this pool. Shane actually is already in the pool and has been drinking <laughs> since one. Yeah, you can bring down your own alcohol. That's that's the trick. That's how you keep it cheap at the Thompson. The, the Thompson Hotel. If, they, if they're listening to this, like, yeah, no, that's the trick. You bring a vo- you bring vodka yeah. and a thermos. You bring vodka and a thermos, and nobody gives you a hard time. Um, so Max and I get in there at about like what four. Uh, yeah, it was about four o'clock. It was very hot. We jump in the pool within two minutes. You're recognized by a guy in a Miller light hat. Yeah, Dan, really <laughs> nice guy. Works for Miller. So if you're listening, Dan, uh, send those coupons over to my place. Uh, and uh, but you should say we didn't quite just like take off our shirts and jump in the pool. No. We got there and we looked around and it was like the cast of Magic Mike was like hanging out around the pool. It was incredibly intimidating. Oh like we're gonna God. take our shirts off. Uh. Yeah, it's like I'm a doughy mess and I'm standing next to like The Bachelor or something. Yeah. So we bucket up, we take our shirts off, we get in the pool, we get laughed at. Max makes friends with a guy from Miller Lite. Uh, and then we have some dinner. We decide to go back to Hamilton. So now Because the rest of the guys are there kind of waiting for us. Yeah. The, all the guys from the Facebook group are waiting for us in Hamilton. They want to have a Saturday night. So we meet up with all the guys and we're all talking about the next Bachelor trip because uh, our friend Mike D... 
Yeah, who who plays in Arkells? He's he's about to get married uh, sometime uh, this winter, and uh, that's the next big bachelor. That's trip. the next big. Uh, but there's only been there's already been three. Yeah, so let's run us through which which uh, bachelor trips have happened. The so infamous far. 2013 Cuba. Because it was the first bachelor trip, I thought all bachelor trips were a week long into Cuba <laughs> or somewhere like really far away because it was the first one I've ever been on. Yeah, I told like. Friends, they're like, usually a bachelor trip is maybe two or three days, and it's usually somewhere close. It's like you go to a cottage. The point is we overindulge in these trips. Yeah, because we're just looking for a chance to hang out with each other. That's right. Yeah. Uh, second trip, Las Vegas. Yeah, classic bachelor trip move. It was our friend Mike M., otherwise known as Jug. Uh, it was his choice. It was, he's getting married uh, in a couple weeks, and so we went to Vegas. And that was actually just before we went to L.A. to interview Tim McAuliffe. It's a good callback. Yeah, good callback. And then the most recent one is Julian, where we went on a tour of the South. And now we have to start planning for Mike D. Mike D's. And now the problem is, is that I think that with the first two, three bachelor trips, the girlfriend's like, okay, go do your thing. Have fun with your friends. But it's like, we're looking kind of down the line of people <laughs> that are kind of over the age of 28 who might be getting married at some point in the next few years. And there's literally like 16 more of these happening. <laughs> <laughs> and the guys can't wait. And the guys cannot wait. And it's eating up everyone's vacation time. Yeah. So I guess the question, Mike, for you is what is like, uh, what's the amount each person should be spending on? Like what, what should it cost a bachelor trip? Oh, is there a number that we can? I don't know. I guess it's a different number for, for different people. Yeah. I mean, for a week, uh, in, at the worst <laughs> resort in Cuba. Yeah, we went to a two star in Cuba, and the, <laughs> Which the is pavil- half star everywhere else. The pavilion where we got our beer and the sandwiches stunk like shit. <laughs> like literally smelled like shit. Yeah, we called it the shit pavilion. <laughs> we can say that on this podcast, you can right? Say you yeah, want. Club Kwama going to sue Kwama. us? No. No. They're a sponsor of this podcast, actually. <laughs> the Micah Much podcast is brought to you by the ham sandwiches at the Shit Pavilion. <laughs> I just like saying Shit Pavilion. Shit Pavilion. Um, I don't know how much is an acceptable nah, amount. I don't know. Or I don't even know. time. Do you go for a week? Do you go for four days? I just want to hang out with my friends. Yeah, we just want to hang out with our pals. All right, let's get to Josh Groban. Mm-hmm. So uh, Josh Groban was an interview that actually came through um, what we call the car wash at Much. So mm-hmm. basically, you know, Josh was doing e-talk. He was doing the social, uh, all of these legitimate shows. And then... Josh was kind enough to agree to do the Mike on Much podcast. Because he's a pro and he has a hard time saying no, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and this is an interesting interview because, Max, I think you were on tour. You we were out of town. I couldn't be there for you, this one. You couldn't be there for this mm-hmm. one. But you are uh, you were excited about Josh Groban. I was very excited about Josh Groban. I, I feel like he's done a lot in his, in his young life. He's an interesting guy. I mean, obviously, he wears a few hats. He's a uh, an actor. He's a singer. Uh, he flies a plane, as we'll learn. Actually, one thing, Max, about this interview is um, because you couldn't be there, when Max isn't there, what we'll do is we'll get Shane to sort of like produce, the, it, we'll bump him up. So basically it ends up being <laughs> me and Shane sitting in the room. Because normally it would be like uh, Max and I, and Max is very engaging, he'll loosen up the guest, and then I get in there with the questions. So we're like, <laughs> Shane, you're promoted, you know? And as you'll find out, this has happened for a couple of other interviews, which you'll hear in other episodes. So Shane and I are sitting there, uh, and we're in this boardroom, and we're waiting for Josh Groban to come in. He's doing all his other press, and... You know, we're waiting there and we're waiting there. About 10 minutes pass and uh, Shane goes, uh, hey. And I'm like, what? He's like, what do you think Josh Groban is worth? And I was like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I didn't really think about it. And he's like, man, I'd love to know. I'm like, all right, let's look it up. So we look it up. It's a lot of money. It's like $30 million or something online. I don't know if that's true or not. So anyway, we do the interview. We finish it. Goes great. And afterwards, I call Max because he always wants the uh, post-mortem. It's like, how did the interview go? What happened? And the first thing I say is like, Max, guess how much Josh Groban's worth? And then I said, ooh, 
a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, I have no, I, I don't know really how money works, generally speaking. <laughs> I might have said $500 million. Yeah, I don't then, know if it was a billion, but a it was billion, you way overshot it. <laughs> Half a billion dollars. What do you think he does? He could own a sports know. team with that kind of money. <laughs> Uh, because I because I'm a little bit of a like a, a gossip queen myself, <laughs> I said, "Do you think we can talk about Cat Dennings? Because you know they're dating, and I guess we were told we weren't allowed to ask any questions. About it was Kat the Dennings. only thing off limits, and it made me think, uh, Mike, if you were in Josh Groban's uh, position, you're sort of a public high profile guy. How comfortable would you be talking about your personal life? What's what's your what's your stance on that? It's a good question. Uh, I, I personally, here's the one thing too. You never know where a relationship's at. It yeah. can be uncomfortable if you go to a dinner party and someone asks about your girlfriend and things aren't going well. That's you know, true. it's like you don't know where people are at uh-huh. and it's kind of like weird fodder, but it is interesting and people are interested. Uh, here's the other thing. If you're Josh Groban and you're like, you know, I'm here promoting my record or I'm talking about this movie that I'm in. He's like, if everything becomes about this relationship, it's like, yeah, it's sort of taking away from his job and why he's why really he's there. there. Yeah, but you know, you're also a public personality, and I guess you're selling a part of yourself, but maybe not. You know what? If uh, everyone's allowed to make their own lines, Max, that's true. How would you feel uh, if people ask you that sort of question? Um, it's a good question. Yeah, I, I uh, on a certain level, I feel like it comes with the territory of being like a celebrity, especially if you choose to date another celebrity. It's like you're kind of asking for it a little bit, and you're compensated really well for your job. So if a little snot-nosed podcaster wants to ask you about it. <laughs> that was the original name of the podcast, the snot-nosed podcast. Yeah. Uh, then just roll with it, baby. But uh, you didn't ask about Cat Dennings. No. Because you're a gentleman, Mike. And uh, I felt we got a ton out of the interview. And you know what? The thing for me listening back to this interview, which I liked about it so much, is that Groban is a very self-aware guy. Like he, You can tell he's sort of like thought about his place in the world, how he's been very fortunate and very lucky, and also how hard he works. Like I feel like sometimes when you see interviews with other people, they become so – that have reached the level of fame that Josh Groban has, they become so accustomed to their lifestyle that it doesn't seem – miraculous to them in any way it's become so normalized but i think he also understands like just sort of how the stars have to align to become that 30 million air <laughs> guy <laughs> sorry what would you call 30 million air <laughs> <laughs> you'd say he's worth 30 million dollars i wanted it to sound way smoother than that <laughs> how do you become a 30 millionaire <laughs> As I was saying that, I was looking at Mike. I was like, how is this sounding coming (laughs) out of my mouth? And I didn't know where you were going, so I just kept staring into your eyes. Um, (laughs) We're just like locking eyes as I'm saying this nonsense. Let's get to Josh Groban. Hey, Josh, I'm Shane. Nice to meet you. I'm Mike. Nice to meet you, Josh. Reporter. Right here? Yeah, yeah. perfect. How's it been? Have you been going all day? Uh, Yeah, I've been going all day today and, um, and yesterday, too, just and the day before. And the last two months. Uh, so um, yes, no, it's uh, it's it's been great. Um, back to be glad to be back in Toronto. It's a great city, and wish I were home. Yeah, yeah. Just for the couple of days, or just for the couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Um, flying out again this afternoon. But um, you know, it's been it's been a grind. A lot of early mornings. I'm a night owl, so you know, anytime you have to sing, you know, at six in the morning, you're kind of psyching yourself out. Think, <laughs> exactly. think that you're think that you're warm. Yeah. Like trying to force yourself to go to sleep so that you can be fresh. Oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, that's exactly. difficult. We were very excited to uh, talk to you today because, you know, despite your success at such an early age, 
Um, you've always been known as sort of very down to earth and self aware. Um, <laughs> that seems to be very rare, you know, for people who become sort of wildly successful uh, sure. in their teens. Can you talk a bit about your folks and where that sort of comes from? That mentality. Yeah, sure. Um, no, I'm glad you brought up my folks because because I mean I have such a, a such a great sounding board in them, and I've got such a great kind of down to earth family. I've got the greatest brother in the world who's just you know so much smarter than I am, and he's just <laughs> kind of keeps it real with me all the time. And, Older or younger? Uh, younger. Oh, wow. Four years to the day. We have the same birthday four years apart. So we had to learn to share very, very early. Yeah, I got a, I got a baby brother on my fourth birthday, which yeah, was, at the you, time really sucked. But You got uh, four years alone, though, at least. I, I did. I had four days, years yeah. just to, to shine, you know, and then uh, we had to share. But And my parents are, are not stage parents. You know, they um, love the arts and, and uh, love, you know, are very proud and all, all that, of course, and have a great time coming to shows and stuff like that. And, but they, you know, they get starstruck, you know, like everyone else. They, they... Um, will tell me if they think something hasn't been my best or if they think that um, something has just kind of made me leave planet Earth for a minute, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they keep my feet firmly planted on the ground. And so I try to surround myself with friends and, and other, you know, music colleagues that, that like to live on planet Earth too, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. But the other thing is too, I think the genre of music that I make, um, you know, is is so high pressure from a te- te- technical standpoint. It's, it demands so much um, training and things like that, that really there wasn't a lot of time for, um, you know, the party scene and going and just kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who get like a, a hit song very early on, the song is on the radio doing all the work for them like all day, every day. So they can go out and they can party and they can burn the candle at both ends. Right. When you have to like physically be there and sing all the time, um, it, you really learn from a very early age, like how much the work ethic has to come into play in order to be successful. So I think that um, that that also I think in retrospect was good that I wasn't kind of thrown right into the hype party scene early on. You know, I wasn't ever like the it guy. I was selling more than everyone else, but I wasn't like the hyped darling. You know, right? So um, so I think it, in retrospect that was a good thing. Interesting. You were saying you know your parents are very uh, sort of down to earth. Your mother was a teacher. Yeah, my mom uh, was a, was a junior high art school teacher, and she kind of became full time mom when my brother and I were born. But now she's. Um, doing great design work and she's also working very very hard on, on behalf of my foundation my arts foundation so it's amazing yeah I mean at, at a young age were your parents sort of always into sort of like entertainment you know they play instruments was, was there music around the house all the uh, time? there was always music around the house um, my mom is a visual artist uh, so she would paint sometimes my dad um, plays trumpet or he played trumpet through college he put it away to become a business guy but uh, <laughs> but every now and then he'd play the trumpet but he always played piano throughout the house we had a piano in the house and he would just always kind of, it was just blues and C, you know, he just always play, sure. play, play and C, you know, and, uh, and I got my ear from him though. I learned to play by ear from, from him. And, uh, and so, you know, that, and then great records, just great, great songs and being, being pulled to great shows. You know, when you live in LA, you can either choose to kind of stay in front of your TV all day or you can get in the car and drive out. And so I really give my parents so much credit for pulling my brother and I to the music center to see opera and classical music and that kind of thing. Because it got us, it got us buzzing at an yeah. early age. Yeah. Uh, you were saying you had a piano in the house. Were you sort of immediately drawn to the piano? Is that something I was, that came oh, naturally? Immediately, like when I was in diapers, like I would still crawl up onto the stool and I would just bash out these complicated melodies just because I was just putting my fist on the keys, you know. Yeah. But um, no, it was it was an outlet for me, really. That and the drums. You know, I, I would go home after you know a tough day at school or whatever, and I would just I would play, you know, and I and I didn't realized that what I was doing was writing music. To me, it was just exercising the demons. But I realized later in life that, like, okay, well, you can write. Like, that's what you're doing is you're coming up with melodies off the top of your head. Structure that, and then that's writing a song, you know. So, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I kind of taught myself the piano when I was younger because you, it, it served me well. Do you remember the first song you ever wrote, your first original? 
Uh, first song I ever wrote. Um, yeah, actually I do. Um, I, I made a, made an album with Rick Rubin four years ago now, and there's an instrumental on that record called Wandering Kind, and that is a melody that was my first melody that I ever wrote when I was a kid, and I wow. and I just just have always remembered it, and I just thought, you know what, let's let's do something with this, and so. I brought it back out and we kind of did a great, great kind of folk arrangement around it and uh, put it on the record. And it was, that's always fun. How was working with Rick Rubin? It's great. You know, he's a, a brilliant, interesting, complicated guy and right. uh, and um, and a wonderful ear and a wonderful um, wonderful producer in that he he really gets the artist in a headspace for them to create their own greatness. He's not a do he's not a do it for you kind of producer. He's not gonna he's not gonna push the buttons for you. But what he will do is he'll provide you with the right inspiration, he'll get you listening to the right things, um, and he'll get you with the right musicians to really kind of um, craft something that feels exceedingly personal. He, he will make your, you your most personal record. And, um, and so for, for that reason, it was a blast to work with him. Um, now, movies, TV, you're a legit actor. Uh, uh, not many big time <laughs> musicians can pull that off. Uh, thanks. Um, growing up, did you have favorite sort of actors or films that sort of stood out, things that you were really into? Um, I mean, I was a child of the 80s, so, you know, I grew up kind of watching things like Dark Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and things oh, like yeah. that, you know, all the great yeah. kind of movies. Yeah, 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 with the power. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I remember getting a VHS copy of Sunday in the Park with George, with Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin, and I was like nine years old, and that's, yeah. what, that's what kind of first gave me the bug for musical theater, was watching that. But, um, you know, remember the days we had to rewind? You know, you probably, oh, my you probably weren't around. No, those we're days. the same age. Actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I remember um, Mandy Patinkin in Chicago Hope. I oh, yeah, uh, Chicago Hope. And I remember, think, and I remember thinking, this is such a better show than ER. Yes. And then, and totally. then and I was thinking, God, this is the show I'm going to watch. Yeah. And then ER became the thing. And <laughs> that like, was the one. Darn it. You yeah. know? But, I stuck uh, with Chicago Hope. Me too. Yeah. I stuck with like it until the end. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah, so, you know, I watched a lot of artsy stuff. You know, my parents brought home a lot of really fun stuff for me to watch. As far as like um, acting, is there any sort of roles or genres that you want? Like, would you want to do a sci-fi or sort of? Do you lean more towards comedy or drama? I want to play a villain. Yeah, I was wondering. I that, think yeah. that'd be really fun. Like, I, I think. I mean, I like playing the bizarro version of myself in stuff. Like, they always <laughs> kind of have you playing like the kind of the over-the-top, you know, asshole. You know, right. which is which is which is fun because I, I sat behind that guy in high school, you know, my whole life. So, um, you know, it's 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 great when I can do kind of slapsticky stuff, which is great. But I would love. Um, I would love at some point to like put on like tons of crazy Marvel makeup or whatever and just play yeah. like the worst villain of all time and just be completely unrecognizable. That would be fun. Do you sort of consider yourself like I'm a music, I'm a musician first and then acting is this thing that I love doing as well yeah. or do you see them on par sort of? Um, no, I, I think if I'm honest with myself, I would have to say that music is my first, my first kind of um, knack, you know, it's, it's what I know best. Uh, with, with acting, it's really, it's about telling a story and diving into that character. And I love it because it takes it away from the solo spot and put, you can really kind of dive into character work and work with the cast. And it's what I love about theater too. But, um, but no, I, every time I've had opportunities to do more acting than music, I've always been pulled more in the direction of, yeah, but then I wouldn't be able to tour or yeah, but then I wouldn't be able to make another record. And so my instincts have always brought me back to singing because ultimately I think singing and making music is, is what I is what I'm here to do. You were mentioning the uh, Manny Patinkin and Bernard Peters film that got you into sort of like you know musical theater, that mm -hmm. sort of genre. Um, it seems like most teenagers growing up they sort of listen to pop, yeah. rock, hip hop. Yeah. I mean were you always sort of drawn to the world of like, you know, operatic pop? I and liked sort it of all, music truly. Theater? I really had such an open mind. I, I was also, you know, buying, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam yeah, Ten and um, you know, Arrested Development, and you know all this, and uh, you <laughs> Mr. Know, Wendell's class. Yeah, Mr. Wendell's a classic. <laughs> you know, Game of Horseshoe. 
And, uh, you know, I was, I was into the grunge thing. I was Brian Green Day and all that stuff. And I was going to those concerts and I was, and I got caught up in the ska thing, you know, and that was a huge, yeah. it was like, I just, you know, I, I listened to everything else. It was just that this was a world I really liked too. And it was, and even though I loved that stuff, I knew that drums were the only way I was going to perform that stuff. So I bashed out on the drums to those bands, you know, every day. But as a vocalist, I knew that what I wanted to do was still tell those stories. And I knew that what I w was meant to do was to, you know, really, really have more of a traditional style of singing and to, and to, to act and sing at the same time. I think as much as I loved, um, you know, that rhythm and that energy, um, there's nothing I enjoyed more than really telling those stories with, with that kind of singing. Did you ever, you know, consider starting a band on the drums or did you start any sort of uh, garage bands? No, I, I never did really. I mean, I played with, played with guys in school. We would jam every now and then at lunch breaks and things like that. But no, generally it was kind of a solo thing. I was just kind of plug in my earphones and play along with all sorts of things. Did, you, did your brother ever want to get into it, or I mean, did my you brother ever... plays guitar and he plays saxophone, uh, and uh, and we would jam every now and then too. Yeah. yeah, he would come up with his guitar and we would play. But uh, is he ever trying to get on the road with you? And get on? He's come on the road because he's a director, so he's behind oh, the scenes. Amazing. So he's he's um, he's somebody who's always seen the world through a lens, and he's just you know went to USC film school, and his thing has always been about capturing things. You know, he's very visual, so that's something that I'm not good at at all. So we kind of yin and yang in that way, and I've written music for one of his movies, and he's. You know, direct one of my music videos, and it's nice that we can kind of collab that way. And he's doing great. So, um, no, I think for him, the performance side of things is just truly just for his own enjoyment. Um, you mentioned uh, in another interview how some great singers have like no formal sort of vocal training. Right. Um, do you have a favorite singer? You know, who maybe isn't conventionally like sort of trained or great, but you um, still love to listen to? Probably Bjork. I think somebody oh, who who um, just kind of has a wild voice and somebody who you know, may very well have had traditional voice training. If she has, I don't know about it. But I have a feeling she hasn't. I just yeah. have a feeling that she's just, and I've watched videos from her like singing. She was a child star in Iceland. Like she would sing on things when she was a kid. And she just had that. There was something about it that just had a pathos to it. And um, and she's, you know, she's an incredible interpreter. And she just does zany things with her voice that no voice teacher would say to do. And, um, and she does it. So, you know, I'm, I am all for voice training. I can't do what I do without great voice training. Um, and technique is everything, but um, but then I also love those voices that are kind of off the beaten path, you know, and are a little bit fringy, yeah. and uh, you know, are instantly recognizable. Um, we were talking a bit about basketball. I always find, you know, when someone does what you do at your level, it does take. You're saying you can't do what you do without the training, right? Um, you know, and you hear about great basketball players. Sports they're, they're and they're music, 10, sports hours of and music are so similar that way. Mm -hmm. The the nerves, the clutch that you need to have, and like it's it's and the training that you need to have. People ask, you know, people, you know, I got a question today. Well, you're such a great singer. Why do you need training? I'm like, well, you know, LeBron is a coach. Like, you need you need people to have your back that way, and you need people to get you out of your own head. It's more coaching, truly at this level, is more of a mental thing than a physical thing. Interesting. You know, we, we all know how to do it. I know how to sing. I can go out onto any stage and sing these songs. It's about, it's about the headspace. It's about making sure that you're mentally there so that you can focus and be in the zone no matter where you're at. Because anytime your ability is because of your body, you know, um, your brain controls all of that and human beings are imperfect and we get stressed and we get nervous and we're, we have light sides and dark sides and I think the best best purpose of a coach is that whatever's going on outside the court or outside the stage that person can zone you in to perform at your best level for that moment. Do you personally enjoy sort of the training and the steps or do you see it as sort of a necessary thing to get you on the stage? Like is it like... No, it's, 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 it's not enjoyable. Training is no. <laughs> not enjoyable. It's like going to the gym. Some people love it. I don't love it. You know, 
but you do it to be strong, you know? Yeah. And you do the scales because you know that when you're out there and you're feeling like crap one day, that the technique will take over and that you'll know, you'll know what you're doing. And then you also learn from experience that when you haven't sung for a couple months or if you haven't shot free, three free throws for a couple months or whatever, you go out there and you go, oh crap, you know, what am I, you know, this feels foreign to me after just two months of not doing it. Yeah. So you have to keep it up and it is a grind. That's where the, the work is in the training, truly. The, the, the part that's not fun is the training so that when you go out on stage, it is fun and you are in control and you are reaching an audience in a way that you never thought possible. Because you're not thinking about your No, you're just doing it. The, the training is take over. Exactly right. You're out there and you're just enjoying that moment with the audience. So the behind the scenes of an album rollout and uh, obviously stages came out, I believe, last month? Couple yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's always really interesting to me. I mean, after the final mix is complete, there's album art, rehearsal, tour, various promo yeah. needs um, to be done. I guess like you've been doing this a long time, but I mean, what parts are sort of the most stressful for you in that process? Um, I think honestly, you know, the promo is harder than the tour because you're constantly traveling around. You have to sing at peak level. Um, sometimes at hours in the morning that there, no human being should have to sing at that, at that, yeah. at that level. people can't talk at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, um, depending on jet lag, sometimes you get eight hours, sometimes you get one, you know, and, um, but audiences aren't listening for that. They're just listening and, you know, about whether or not you sound good or not, then they're going to tweet you're either great or you suck, you know? So it's, it's, it's a very high pressure thing. And so that's, that's where you really have to focus the most, I think, is when you're doing international press. And then also having to sing on that level as well. Um, that's once you get through that period, then you can kind of enjoy the rest of the ride, and then you're kind of doing your victory lap. Right. This is sort of, that's the work part. Is that's the, the work, work part. part? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. With the exception of this conversation, of course, which is, <laughs> which is a complete joy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Likewise. Um, so, I mean, with all of that, like throughout your process, when you're writing music, when you're recording music, sort of like getting ears and, and eyes on things like like album artwork, have you traditionally had like? people or someone that you lean on, I mean, for all of those things? Yeah, it's a team effort. I mean, my face is on the front, my name yeah. is on the front, but there's 20, 30 people, if not 100, you know, that are within the, and that's, that's, you know, including the recording team, the producers, the musicians that were on this record, um, the arrangers who don't always get the credit for making these extraordinary arrangements on this record, but then the record label team, the incredible people who are grinding every single day to make sure that you know, the images are right and that the, the press is set up right and that everything else is there so that I can just, all I have to do is show up and knock the duck down. Yeah. But, um, but the, the footwork that goes into setting up a record release, setting up all those things, um, it's why the thank you page is, you know, just tiny, you know, you've got to fit everything in because there are so many people to thank and you just absolutely couldn't do it without them. So, no, I get to go out on the playground and I get to play, but it's because of so much work that's been put into building it before I show up. Um, speaking of arrangers and musicians, do you sort of prefer to work with the same people over and over, or do you like to sort of experience it with a wide variety? Uh, it's a it's a, it's a mix. I I you know there's definitely a, a shorthand with people you know well, and there's a certain amount of if it ain't broke don't fix it with people you work well with. Um, you know David Foster and I did three albums together. You know um, working with Umberto Gatica and Bernie Herms was amazing this time around. I'd love to do another album with them. Um, and then sometimes it's like an actor working with different directors. Sometimes you just need to expand your horizons, learn new things, and frankly kind of get scared again. Like find ways to get a little more on edge in there. Not knowing kind of where it's going to lead is a healthy thing, especially as you're approaching your sixth and seventh and eighth record. Yeah. You don't want to feel too comfortable because then you get bored, your audience gets bored. So it's, it's a little bit of both, but I'd say mostly you want to work with people that you know get you. Um, and then every now and then you want to work with, uh, 
you know, someone who, who throws you a hundred curveballs every group. <laughs> Get out of the comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Some yeah. of the good stuff happens. Yeah. You know, in talking to you about sort of like training at, you know, it seems like you appreciate the notion of like sort of working hard, you know, be it on your singing, writing, obviously doing press, sure. the training you're talking about. Yeah. Can you sort of describe your attitude or philosophy when it comes to, you know, this job of being like Josh Groban, you know, this is like sort of your livelihood. What's yeah. your philosophy? How do you sort of approach it? Well, I mean, anytime you're promoting you and you're promoting a you that is a musician you, you know, and so with that comes marketing and branding and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it can be a tricky balance. Like how much do you keep for yourself? You know, how much is just your private you, you know? And, um, you know, I, I, I keep things for the most part pretty open. Um, but you know, I, I, I keep my personal life pretty private. I think it's just, just something that I think keeps me sane and keeps that, you know, side of it just kind of, um, protected a little bit just so it can live and breathe on its own. But, um, you know, the interesting thing about being signed when you're really young is that you're kind of forced into being a student and a pro at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you don't really know, quite frankly, at 17 or 18 or 19, or some people even through their, through their twenties who you really are, what you want to be, who you, who you want to say you are, what you want to be as a human being. So when I got signed, I was signed as kind of this great big voice um, and loved the music that I was recording and still love it. But I don't think I was a full, I was still incubating, I think, as, as a person. And I think that there's a great many years when you first start where, you know, you feel like you're kind of learning as you go and you kind of have to go out there and, and fake a certain confidence because inside you're just still figuring it all out. And I think the nice thing about the last five years or so is that I feel like I've finally taken ownership of it. Like I know who I am. I feel comfortable, you know, going in and being super serious about the music. I feel comfortable going and doing really weird comedy stuff. Like I feel comfortable showing the different sides now, not being afraid that it's going to be off brand or it's going to be, you know, turn some people off. I just, at this point, like, it, I, I just like being me. And if people are along for it, then great. When you did sign that deal, do you remember thinking like, oh my goodness, like I'm signing a record? Or did you have sort of like, was there a little bit of trepidation? Were you... Oh, there was very little trepidation, you honestly. Just... Well, because I knew David for a couple of years before that happened. So David and I, David Foster and I, had done a lot of things. We'd sung in a lot at a lot of charity events. How did you guys connect? We connected through a voice teacher when I was 15, 16. And, uh, did, he, sorry, did you seek out a voice teacher? Were you like sort of like an ambitious, like you were like, I yeah. want a teacher? No, to... I was working with a school with a school buddy's dad who happened to be a voice teacher and heard me sing in a choir and said, hey, I want to give you lessons for free. Wow. And uh, and so I would go with just, he was down, lived down the street. And so I was working with him and he happened to know David and David called him and said, who have you got who's young who can sing? He sent in five tapes of five singers he was working with and I was the tape he picked. And, you know, so it, it, that's how I met David Foster. And it could have been just that one event and it turned into 15 years, you know, but, um, but that's the universe for you. And that's any of us who've been lucky enough to have that great kind of coming out in the industry. Um, I think attributed to that one person that said, Hey, I believe in you. And, and, um, it was serendipity for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned your, your mother's a visual artist, yeah. um, you know, outside of music, acting, uh, you charitable sort of things. Are there other things that people might be surprised that you're sort of into or things that you might want to explore in the future? Um, I mean, like, you know, I'm, it's so funny cause music was like my hobby for, it's been my only hobby. Like, you know, when I wasn't making music, I'd make music for fun. Um, but I'm starting to, you know, I, I play tennis. I like to play tennis. Oh, like, yeah. Love, love sports. Um, love hockey. <laughs> can't play it for shit, but I, I love watching it. Um, and uh, you're appealing to the Canadians right now. Oh well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's true. It's just it's just the greatest sport. It's awesome. But um, 
Uh, I'm getting my pilot's license, working on that. Get, oh, cool. get, getting out, getting up in the air, and that's kind of a different change of pace for my brain. Fly those like small planes? Yeah, small, yeah. just a serious assessment. That's terrifying to me. It's well, flying was terrifying for me as a passenger. It's much more terrifying looking out the side window than it is looking <laughs> out the front window because you can't control it. Oh, you're looking at things are going by so fast. You're going and things are bumping, and you're seeing the wing do it. You know, when you're in the you know when you're in the cockpit. You can actually read the instruments and see, oh, nothing is actually wrong with the plane. We're fine. Oh, we're still at 10,000 feet. We've not actually dropped. Like, it gives you a measure of it confidence. It gives you a measure of confidence yeah. that the plane is actually doing what it's supposed to do. <laughs> and uh, so learning how to fly has made me a much better passenger because now I know you know, how incredible these machines are and really how, how in little danger we are when we're up there. But uh, yeah. So you're going to be a pilot in the next few years? Yeah, I've got 30 hours left. I've done 30 right. hours, now I've got 30 hours left, and I'll dedicate a few months to it, and then I'll hopefully be flying from gig to gig. Yeah, oh. <laughs> God, I guess no Canadian airspace a little I'll better. fly myself. It's cool. I yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Travolta did it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so. That's true. Uh, yeah. um, I guess lastly, I mean, talent and hard work are extremely important sort of building blocks for anyone in your line of work. Um, I guess outside of those, what are sort of the intangibles, uh, you know, like or approach that has allowed you to be so successful for so long? Some of... You know, really some of it comes down to, um, you know, I'm a bit of an overthinker. So, you know, my career kind of developed an accidental formula. When I first got signed, nobody was expecting it's somewhere in the 100,000 records maybe worldwide. You know, maybe we break even. And what do you know? Like, people, like, had an emotional, visceral connection to it. And then, you know, you go into the next record and you get songs, people sending people sending you songs because it's a formula, because it sold 5 million records. We want to, we want to write Josh Groban songs. So then you go through a stack of stuff that just feels like a copy of a copy of a copy, and then you go, nope, gotta start from moment one. I have, pretend you haven't released anything. Pretend you're that scared kid who's not expecting to sell anything, and make that record again. And really, you kinda have to do that record after record after record. Every time you've raised a bar for yourself success-wise, the main thing truly is to not, um, you know, live in it too much. It's, you know, I, I hate to say don't celebrate it too much, but you can celebrate it for a minute, but then you gotta find that place again of vulnerability. You gotta find that place again where you're not afraid to fail because once you've had success, it's way scarier the prospect of failing than it was before you had success. It's hard to go back. It's hard, way harder to go back than to stay where you were. So, um, so really, truly, it's it, you have to go with the goosebump meter when you're in there and stop. Don't think about formula. Don't think about this the stack of songs that people think is what what people want to hear from me. Um, just you got you got to find that place of what got you there in the first place every single time. And I would say to any artist that's in the business. Make your first record that way, make your last record that way. You know, it's the, the, the artists that I've been lucky enough to work with or meet that have been in the industry for 50, 60 years who are just absolute, you know, have every right to live in that legendary mythology, don't. They are, they, they're heralded by every award, every, they've had every success under the sun. But when you're in a room with them, all they want to talk about is what's next. All they want to talk about is what they haven't done yet. And I think that that's... That's the key to anybody who's been around for, for a long time is I think to always have that fire and to always have that humility that, you know, even if you're 70 or 80 and just the greatest, one of the greatest artists of all time, just the feeling of yourself that you could still let yourself down, you know, is, um, is really important. And, um, you know, I've been in this business, we've chucked a lot of fads, we've, we've beaten a lot of odds, and I've seen a lot, of, a lot of artists come and go that were the hottest thing one minute and then not. And I'm perfectly happy to kind of be under the radar a little bit and just kind of keep doing things our way. So I think that's that's a good path to have. It's a great way to close it. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks. Josh. Thank you. 
Shane, how's it going? Oh, life's a roller coaster. <laughs> you had that line canned. I did, because I knew he was going to ask it. Because usually I say good or bad, but now it's a roller coaster. And it's just a roller coaster. Shane is uh, actually wearing an Arkell shirt right now. It's a supportive friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, supportive or a thief. <laughs> Accusations are well, flying. You were too bombed to even realize what happened that night. <laughs> no, you know what? My, my, uh, so the Arkells keep a lot of their merch at my place. And so whenever anybody comes over to my place, they leave with an Arkell shirt. They, everyone sweats through their clothes, like, uh, you know, on a, on a summer day. And then they just like, oh, I have a new t shirt. And then they leave you money for the shirt, right? No, that never happens. They just go, <laughs> I'm promoting the band, Max. It's a fair trade, right? Like your brother just kind of is like decked out head to toe in Arkell's like merchandise. But it was like when it was like a laundry day. Yeah, I just, don't even know where he got the Arkell's jogging pants, but he comes <laughs> into work in the full suit sometimes. Like the hat, the sweater, the zip up in the jogging pants. Yeah, everyone, whenever anybody's wearing Arkell's merch, they just like, then they see me, they just smile and put a little guilt in their eye. Yeah. yeah. Will anyway. you ever ask for the money? No, no, I don't care. You're off the hook, Shane. Yeah. In my defense, though, <laughs> I was kicked out of a bar for wearing a tank top. Like, people who don't know what I look like, I'm very ripped with a bunch of tattoos. <laughs> so I kind of look like, I'm not ripped, but I kind of look like a gang member or whatever. So I was being profiled because I was asked to leave, but a bunch of other guys without tattoos got to continue wearing their jerseys or their tank tops. Yeah, the tank top rule is so annoying. Like, when we were on this bachelor trip uh, in Memphis, our friend Peak, uh, Matt McPeak, who's half black, he's wearing this like nice. Peak's like the hottest guy you've ever seen. Thanks a lot. <laughs> he's like this beautiful. He kind of looks like a darker John Stamos or something like that. He's he like reminds me of a darker James Franco. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. Two hot guys, uh, and he's wearing this like tightly fitted like white T-shirt, and we're all going to this bar. The bouncer goes, "You can't wear a white T-shirt in here." Like as You've established it, we're in the South? Yeah, yeah, we're in the South, too, right? We're in, we're in Memphis. And Peek's like, it's not, he's not wearing some, like, long, big T-shirt that are sometimes affiliated with, like, gang members. He's wearing this, like, nicely fitted shirt. And either way, the rule is stupid. Let me just say that. <laughs> Clearly, he was being racially profiled. Totally. So, anyway, the bouncer goes, you can't wear that. And Peek's like, well, okay, uh, I have this blue tank top underneath the shirt. Is that fine? He's like, no, you can't wear a tank top either. And so Peek takes off the tank top, puts it over top of the white shirt. He looks like he's like a basketball player in like the early 90s. <laughs> but he still looked awesome. But he still looked awesome. <laughs> Which is a testament to Peek. <laughs> Which is a testament to Peek, and they let him in that way. Right. And then Mike D was there, and he got so mad at the racial profiling that was happening. That Mike we, D, the guitarist in your band. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, he stormed out of the bar. and then we had to The change. bar did suck very badly, yeah, though, I, and we were looking for an excuse to leave. So we were like, this racism's ridiculous. And then, yeah. <laughs> and really just bar. the bar sect? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're making a stand. <laughs> if it was an awesome bar with babes everywhere, we definitely would have stayed. <laughs> this racist bar is amazing. <laughs> So, what have you been up to? Um, just enjoying my new Arkells shirt. Oh, back uh, to the Arkells shirt. You're still defending. Well, it's an Arkells theme, kind of, because Max has been sending me uh, a lot of songs. And I don't know if you guys have heard, I've got a new girl, lady friend. Whoa. Oh, that's you guys, news for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we both knew it's this. Like it's all you talk yeah, about. We- <laughs> So there's a, like a Max, weird Max connection. Oh, a Max connection. Which is part of the reason why I wore this stolen shirt. <laughs> it's all connected. Okay. So a girl that I played basketball with once, 
uh, like two years ago, matched with me on Tinder. Mm-hmm. She's from Hamilton. And uh, I'm like, okay, another hot blonde, whatever, put her in the pile. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oh, how did, how did I miss you or whatever? I'm like, oh, we've actually played basketball together. She's like, oh, here's my number. Instantly gives me her number, like right away. And I text her, hey, it's Shane. And then she's like, hey, if you're ever in Hamilton, message me. I'm like, okay. Then I, I don't message her because I haven't been in Hamilton. And then she sends me a long message like, hey, I've realized I may have a better connection for you. Uh, my cousin, Alex. She's like, oh, you directed my cousin in a, in a music video. It's the Where You Going video that I actually did direct. Yeah, Shane, for our listeners, Shane directed uh, the 80s inspired Ferris Bueller's Day Off inspired Where You Going music video. It's really Which good. was tweeted by Cameron Crowe. Wait, Cameron Crowe loves it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, well, so and if you want to see what Shane's girlfriend looks like, she's in the video, <laughs> in bed with Max. <laughs> yes, she. <laughs> she's his love interest in it. Um, I'm just letting our listeners know. Yeah. But yeah, so anyways, I'm like, if if that's her, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> yada yada yada. We go on our first date like instantly. Like I hook it up. I, I make the trip to Hamilton. Max and uh, a couple of my friends picked out my outfit. Yeah, you came, you came out like four times out of the bathroom. Like, well, how's this guy? <laughs> yeah, the first date went amazing. Uh, banged her. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. <laughs> no, it went very, very well. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, now, uh, yeah, she says we're in like with each other. Ooh. What does that mean? I think it's like as close as... As much as you can possibly like someone without being. Have you love. been like dancing around no. the love word? No, saying saying just like I love spending time with you. <laughs> no, and Max, I, no one does. That. Really? <laughs> if you guys could see the face Max makes <laughs> as he's saying that, is the funniest thing. Like, I'm in love with our dates. <laughs> he's, no, he's no. shaking his fingers. He's moving his head. <laughs> no, I'm trying not to scare her. This time, I'm playing it totally cool. Playing it slow and cool yeah. by talking about it on a national podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys, you're gonna have to send me the heavily edited version Um, (laughs) and uh yeah but our relationship's been about two weeks but now she's been in portugal for two Uh weeks just banging hot portuguese guys yeah yeah and yeah her cousin's texting you Uh uh-huh teasing me about her making out with people and it is literally making not literally it's the wrong word making me go on an emotional roller coaster uh so that's why it's been a roller coaster for you lately yes have you watched any movies with her uh not a lot of watching going on. A lot of making out. <laughs> um, so, yes, this is exciting. So, Shane, we're very excited for you. You have a new girlfriend. You have a new Arkells t-shirt. Yep. Um, I don't know what I love more. <laughs> um, now, did, did you... Uh, I mean, like more. Yeah. Say, wait. Ooh. Um, Let me try that again. Take two. I don't know what I like more. <laughs> no? <laughs> okay, use the It was convincing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Outside of your new girlfriend and new T-shirt, uh, have you seen any movies or heard yeah, any movies? Great- movies. I'm in love. <laughs> ow, ow, ow! In like. And that is our episode. Uh, we want to thank uh, Shane Cunningham for coming on and sharing his. <laughs> He's here for the clothes. Uh, for being here and sharing his love um, with us or his like. His like. We like to thank uh, Josh Groban. Josh Groban. Who was an amazing interview. Yeah, he can fly planes, as we know. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at MikeOnMuch and Instagram at MikeOnMuch. We've been a little shitty uh, with updating our social media, but that is our. New Year's resolution. It's going to change. So in After January 1st, <laughs> yeah, it's going to change. Yeah. Oh, you, you were going for that yeah. joke. I stepped on your punchline. Sorry. 
Um, yeah, so uh, all the artwork for the Mike on Much podcast is done by Jenna Gregory. You can find her work at jennasdoodles.com. A huge thank you to Mounties for letting us use their song Headphones. A huge thank you to Spirits, R.I.P., Hamilton Band, for also letting us use their song. The Mike How Much Podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. We will see you next week if we don't die on the weekend. 